hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 415, Ships That Sink in the Night. Last time, as the sun prepared to rise, Pedestal had been whittled down during the night. The cargo vessel Glenorchy was gone. Another, Wayangi, was badly damaged, but still game. Then there is the sad affair of the Ameria Likes. And lastly, the MV Dorset was damaged after hitting two mines. The good news, well, for those that were still alive, was that this trip was almost over. But wrapping up that sad tale of Ameria Likes, when Master Henderson returned to evaluate his ship because Commander Gibbs of the Pathfinder made him, one of the few that returned with the captain was Henry Brown, the first assistant engineer. He was one of, if not the, youngest of the crew. Eventually, he returned to the States, checked into a New York hotel, and on September 5th of that same year, jumped out of the hotel window. The why is unclear, but it either came down to the shame that he and the crew felt, or simply, he could not live with the horrors of that night, as many who had survived Pedestal felt the same way, suffering from PTSD for years to come. Two men are about to interject themselves into the story of Operation Pedestal, so they deserve an introduction. Aboard the Santa Elisa, led by Captain Tommy Thompson, was Francis Alonzo Dales and Fred Larson. Dales was the youngest man on the Santa Elisa, but you wouldn't know that as everyone on board called him Admiral. Right out of high school, Dales joined the Merchant Marine and just knew he was going to be a hero. Why? He was raised to do what was right and to never shy away from a fight. By the time he was in the middle of the Mediterranean, he was 18 years old and a cadet midshipman. Fred Larson, on the other hand, was 27 years old and the third mate. Larson had been at this for a while and thus had seen much of the world. Dales was from the Deep South and hadn't seen much of anything. But together, they would form a pair that would give the e-boat crews the shivers, and they would help change the course of the war. But more on that later. Before Pendlestow headed out to sea, Dales and the rest of the crew, along with Ensign Gerhard Supinger's Navy gunners, had practiced AA fire at Cardiff. And very quickly, Dales showed all that he was the sharpshooter. Though loaded with blanks, Dales would wait with his twin marlin as the approaching practice plane, about 50 feet overhead, flew by, and then Dales would light into it, time and again. It didn't hurt that he had been one of the first graduates of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy based at Kings Point, New York. Again, everyone was impressed with his accuracy and his ability to stay cool, a virtue in combat. Fred Larson, again third mate, took one look at this guy and had him placed at the Ehrlichan near his own gun on the bridge, literally on the bridge, as in above it, with very little protection. And Dales would later write, Mr. Larson and I had been placed in charge of the 20mm anti-aircraft guns on the port side of the vessel, Mr. Larson being in charge of the forward gun and I the after one. At six bells, 3 a.m., Lonnie Dales and Jack Follinsby, he manned the port Ehrlichan on the main deck below the bridge, heard a rumbling off the port side. 
Actually, three hours earlier, at midnight, Dales had already heard the rumblings of a motor, but he knew that noise could travel for miles across the surface of the water, so it was just best to wait. As for the e-boats, best guess in this confusing time was that they were using flares to try to find their next target in the darkness. For it would be light soon, and their main advantage, besides speed, would be lost. Dales and the crew knew they just had to hold on and hope that the nearest star to their planet would save them with its light. The next part has at least five tellings. Such is the fog of war and memory. Somewhere out on the water, Captain Cafiero, master of e-boat MAS-557, had ignored his orders. Instead of staying with the other two e-boats that had departed Trapani, Sicily, Cafiero had moved his boat to a position about 40 miles, or 64 kilometers, southwest of Pantelleria. He had a hunch, but what he could not know was that Captain Thompson of the Santa Elisa, out of desperation, was trying to take a more direct route to Malta, and thus was coming his way. So Cafiero's hunch, his gut feeling, was about to pay off. By the time Cafiero spotted the Elisa, she was slightly ahead, so he fired up his engines and gave chase. Lieutenant Commander Barnes, the liaison officer, was the first to actually spot MAS-557, saying it had barely started to get light. Through binoculars, I spotted an e-boat coming up astern about a cable, 600 feet away, and crossing from starboard to port. The alarm was passed to the guns, but they did not spot the boat until she was about level with the stern and about a half cable distant. As the e-boat was so close to the ship, the gun crews found that their Ehrlichans could not be pointed down enough to get an effective shot. Some of them actually shot up their own ship, which is when Captain Thompson saw the churned water, a telltale sign of a torpedo. This one was traveling 50 miles an hour. The captain ordered hard to starboard, and that did the trick. The torpedo just missed making contact, passing astern. Later, Lonnie Dales would say he believed that there were probably four e-boats out there, but only one mattered at the moment. When one e-boat was almost alongside, the captain from the bridge wing spotted it and ordered Dales to fire. That was what was written. Dales later said the captain actually said, See that son of a bitch? Get him! The sharpshooter started firing. With bullets flying from many directions, the noise woke Fred Larson, lying on a couch in the deckhouse behind the exposed bridge. Looking out of the porthole, he saw the Italian's green tracers, mixed with the Santa Elisa's red and green tracers, crisscrossing each other. Now he was wide awake, so he flew up the ladder to the starboard side to man his Ehrlichan. Meanwhile, the ship's casualties had already started. Dales was already firing his gun, hiding from the enemy's bullets behind a very small steel shield. Suddenly, Dales' Ehrlichan loader slumped to the floor. There was a hole in his neck, and blood started to run everywhere but he was just the first. Liaison Officer Barnes would write, two more British soldiers were killed on the bridge, and another was killed while at his borfers on the main deck. 
That was enough for Barnes. He dove for the steel floor of the flying bridge, the highest navigational bridge on the ship, soon to be joined by Captain Thompson. Back to Lonnie Dales, he kept firing his gun until it was empty. At this point, his gunner was to be waiting with more rounds, but it was then that Dales noticed he was the only person standing. Still, there was no time to think or react, so he ran to get more ammo, but only to notice that, like his loader, everyone around him was dead, and their blood began to mingle. Dales got what he needed and started firing again. To his recollection, the e-boat burst into flames. Which is not the same thing as completely destroyed. Again, the stories of the survivors of this contradict one another. Some say there was a second e-boat. Others say that Cafiero, though damaged, managed to swing to the starboard side of Elisa and fire off a torpedo. Either way, a torpedo then slammed into the starboard bow. Water gushed over the bridge. But that was not all. In the number one hold was high-test gasoline, and it quickly ignited. Soon fire was spreading to all over the ship. Dale and another said that blue and yellow flames rose 600 feet into the air. To this, a surviving British loader yelled, We'd better get out of here. She'll blow sky high any minute. Captain Thompson gave the order to abandon ship, and as strange as it may sound, he was grateful the gas only caught fire versus exploding. That would have doomed them all. As for the gunmen at the forward gun platform, the fire cut off their escape route. But those that had not been lifted over the side by the torpedo's contact, they jumped over the side anyways. Captain Thompson described the scene. The ship began to settle at the head. In spite of my fears, the aviation gas did not explode, although it did catch fire. It ran out slowly over the surface of the water and lay there, burning. I ordered the engine stopped, since the ship had settled so rapidly that our propeller was already out of the water. Then I rang to abandon ship. It was a hell of an order to give. It was my first ship, but I had the crew to think about. Meanwhile, third mate Fred Larson grabbed a light, his sextant, and went to his boat station. He was in charge of the number two boat on the port side. Leading two British Army radio operators to safety, Larson then saw Captain Thompson having trouble lowering his 50-man number four lifeboat on the deck below him. Larson helped straighten that out, and for his pains, the captain said, I left my dog in my cabin. Could Larson go get it? By the time Fred reached the skipper's captain, there was already a foot of water and no sign of the dog. Larson ran back to his boat. Now back to his lifeboat, Larson found a whole bunch of panic and no activity. Grabbing one of the men, he and Larson lowered the boat, and when they reached the water, two radio operators jumped overboard and landed in Larson's boat, or rather, on Larson. They wore heavy boots, which actually fractured Fred's spine, but there was no time for that now, no time for pain. They were still next to a powder keg of immense explosive potential. Ensign Supinger, in charge of the gun crews, also in the lifeboat, dropped his 45 caliber pistol. Larson picked it up and held on to it. Clearly, the men were panicked, and Fred wasn't going to let their panic get him killed. He held on to that gun. 
raising his voice and raising the gun. Larson got his number two lifeboat away, but he quickly realized he had at least 28 men in his boat. That was meant for 22. This would not do, so Larson had them row to the captain's lifeboat. There he asked the captain to take on some of the men. Thompson said yes, and then every man jack of them in Larson's boat tried to jump and exit at the same time. The pistol was used again, and only some of the men climbed over to that number one lifeboat. As Larson had the men row further away from the doomed Santa Elisa, they ended up picking up more crewmen. Some were badly burned. There was no medication on board, but as we are talking about sailors, there was some whiskey hidden in the water tanks. The burned men were given a few swigs. This calmed or numbed them. Captain Thompson was having the same threat on his boat, the rising of panic amongst the crew. As the captain rarely spoke, his admonition, delivered menacingly after standing up, got their attention. Listen, you men, if anybody opens his yap, I'll clown him. It did the trick. As for the number three lifeboat, that had gotten away from the stricken ship without any issue, but it was dangerously overloaded. Among those on board were Lonnie Dales, the other gunner Fallingsby, and a few burned men. Technically in charge of this lifeboat was Chief Mate England from Sweden, but when he yelled for the men to row, there was pure panic in his voice. This apparently was contagious. The other men started to panic and scream, and that's when the 18-year-old cadet midshipman Lonnie Dales stood up. A British soldier, George Nye, recalled the event. We would have tipped the boat over the way we were going. I don't remember any of the crew of the Elisa because I had only been on the boat for a few days, having boarded at the Clyde. The only one that stood out in my memory was this lad who stood up in the boat and brought order to chaos. And I thought, what a brilliant young lad of 18 or 19, the same age as me. What a brilliant leader of men he was going to be. He calmed everyone down, including his senior people, officers senior in rank and age. I didn't know his name, but as long as I live, I've got a picture of him standing up in the boat and raising his voice, not nasty or anything, but masterly, and everyone did more or less what he told them to do. Meanwhile, the destroyer Penn, along with the destroyer Brahman, had been helping Commodore Venerables continue to see the error of his ways by keeping the Port Chalmers headed towards Malta. It was the pen that saw the fire come from the e-boat that Dales had been shooting at. Its leader, Lieutenant Commander J.H. Swain, wrote down, At 0430, 4.30 a.m., Ehrlichon fire seen ahead, and then an explosion. Shortly afterward, the engine of an e-boat was heard proceeding away from the scene of the explosion. I steered for this point, and as it became light, the Santa Elisa was seen to be stopped and on fire. As the Penn and Brahman decided what to do next, Fred Larson's lifeboat decided to row for Pantelleria to their north, as it was the closest land. They may end up to be POWs, but you have to be alive to be a POW. There are worse things. Soon, however, the crew on Larson's boat saw an approaching ship, and they just knew it was an Italian vessel. How could it be anything else, given where they were? 
So the joy that erupted when the British flag was finally spotted almost turned the whole damn boat over. All told, the 96 rescued men climbed up the rope ladder from the pen, yet three of the burned men would die while aboard. And then, as if it had been scripted as to not waste any time, a crewman of the pen then yelled, Enemy aircraft coming in on the starboard quarter. The Italian crew in that JU-88 wasn't going to waste any daylight of this day, nor any of their bombs, and they had spotted the wounded Elisa. Now that Larson's lifeboat was a half mile away, this was just before they were picked up, they could see that the Santa Elisa was down at the head and that her propeller was mostly out of the water, which is when the JU-88 dropped its 500-kilogram bomb and that landed on the foredeck. As the Elisa was full of explosives, they went off too. Larson's lifeboat, again a half mile away, had pieces of her former vessel rained down on them. The Santa Elisa disappeared quickly after this, as did the men's fighting spirit. Still, as liaison officer Barnes would write, the officers and men behaved excellently under a very trying ordeal and did everything possible to get the ship to her destination. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. As this coverage of Pedestal has taken many episodes to unfold, it's probably best to do a sit-rep of recent events. From midnight to 4 a.m., about the time Santa Elisa was attacked, the following had taken place. E-boats had sunk the Manchester, along with, but not at the same time, as four other victims, these being freighters, Glenorgi, Wairangi, Amiria Likes, and now Santa Elisa. Meanwhile, the cruiser Kenya was damaged, as was a fifth cargo ship, Rochester Castle. The hours before midnight saw three other freighters lost that we've covered, Deucalion, Clan Ferguson, and Empire Hope. Damaged was the Brisbane Star, while the Italian sub Axum had sunk the cruiser Cairo, damaged the Nigeria, forcing her back to Gibraltar, and wounded the tanker Ohio. Going back to the previous day, the carrier Eagle had been sunk by U-73, and another carrier, Indomitable, was wounded and making her way home as best she could. Again, London and the Admiralty had planned for losses, but this was enough to question the entire operation, and it wasn't over yet. But coming back to the present, when dawn broke a Thursday, but no crewman of Pedestal knew or cared about that, Admiral Burrell aboard the destroyer Shanti saw only three merchantmen anywhere around him. The Rochester Castle was in the lead, despite its number three hold full of water, and behind her was the Wairama and Melbourne Star. Some five miles to the rear of them was the Ohio, still with the destroyer Ledbury. They were doing 12 knots, which was a pleasant surprise to all. 
Five miles behind Ohio was the Port Chalmers, which left the Dorset on her own course a bit to the north and Brisbane Star further south, hugging the coast. The dawn may have brought JU-88s out to hunt, but it also allowed bowfighters from Malta to take off to shepherd the remaining ships a pedestal on their last leg. The radio crew of the Ashanti had been working all night to allow Burrow to talk directly to these planes, hoping to bring some organization to the defense of pedestal. Finally, a lieutenant got a response. He spoke for a few minutes, getting all excited that he could tell Burrow that he had established contact, which is when he realized that he was talking to the cruiser Charybdis, who happened to be sailing right next to the Ashanti. The words that flew out of his mouth can't be repeated here or in decent society. As for Admiral Dozara's warships, they were advancing to the rear. That is, three heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, and eight destroyers were near the island of Stromboli, located about 35 miles or 56 kilometers north of Sicily's top right corner. Lieutenant Commander Alastair Mars, captain of the British sub HMS Unbroken, had figured they would come this way when word had come that the Italian warships had turned for home. Hence, he got into position and, not unlike an e-boat, waited. Upon seeing the fleet approaching, Alistair picked out the biggest ships, the cruisers, and fired four torpedoes. The heavy cruiser Bolzano was so badly damaged she had to be towed aground and left to burn. There were plans to repair her, but there were never enough resources to make a go of it. But another of Alistair's torpedoes blew off the bows of the light cruiser Atendolo. She would be mostly repaired, but in December of that same year, 20 B-24s flown by American crews left Egypt loaded with 500 and 1,000-pound bombs. Taranto, the Italian port, was no longer safe for warships, so the Attendolo was docked in Naples. As the American planes came in, they were confused by those on the ground with JU-52 transports, so they were not fired upon until they dropped their initial bombs. This air raid would last just under an hour, but by the time it was done, several ships nearby were heavily damaged, at least 188 people killed, with another 86 wounded. As for the Attendolo, she was still considered repairable after this, but about 11 p.m. that night, she rolled over almost 180 degrees and settled to the bottom at her moorings. She would still be fixed up, but only after the Italian armistice. Back to the unbroken. The enemy destroyers, like angered hornets, dropped 105 depth charges at the sub, which was forced to say submerged for 10 hours straight. Still, that evening, the unbroken returned to Malta, with everyone on board hailed as a hero. And yet, going back to that Thursday morning, the Italian and German attackers were not done yet. If anything, they were just getting started. The freighter Wairama was the largest of the 13 cargo ships, half again the size of the now-lost Santa Elisa. And the Wairama was carrying the most aviation fuel, 
Further, on her afterdecks were tens of thousands of flimsies, that is, gas cans that can hold just under five U.S. gallons or four imperial gallons. When Pedestal had started, the flimsies were covered by cardboard, but with everything that had taken place, those covers were long gone, which left the silver cans to gleam in the sun, making them very easy to spot from on high. And on high at that moment were 24 JU-88s at 5,000 feet, and these had German crews in them. Precisely as they had been trained, the first Junkers dropped into a dive, then a second, and then a third, with 500 feet in between all three of them. Now going 300 miles per hour and at 60 degrees, they focused on those shiny silver cans. The AA guns, the Borfors and the Ehrlichens, did their best, but the planes were moving so fast, all shot, shell, and tracers flew behind them. The first JU went into a steeper dive at 1,000 feet, but all three of his bombs missed. The other pilots would surely roast him when they all got back home, especially if they were accurate. The second Jukers came in and released five 500-pound bombs. Two of these landed on or just behind the bridge. Another landed on hold number four. Below that hatch were torpedoes and mines. The fourth bomb landed on a pile of flimsies. As hoped, these bombs detonated all the cargo that could explode, which left the third JU pilot to disappear forever as his plane was enveloped by the blast and flame of his comrade. Soon the ship, what was left of it, was aflame. Eighty-three of her crew died right then and there. Another twenty or so had been thrown off the ship by the blast. But that was just the beginning of the horror for those survivors, especially the 17-year-old cadet, Frederick Treves. Also about to have their world turned upside down was the next victim, the crew of the Melbourne Star. Greetings, everyone. So I just wanted to thank a couple more people who have donated or become members. I really do appreciate the uh, donations. They're making a huge difference here. Thank you so much. So as far as those who have donated, uh, see Randy Strutz, Cloud Level Media, Craig Martin, Liam Duff, Leo Brown, uh, Jerome Buisman, if I got that wrong, I'm very sorry, Sander Von Hoof, Brian Matthews from Parksville, British Columbia, and Steve from Constitution Hill, Australia, down under. Sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. I had to do that. As far as people who have recently become members, let's see here. Susan Politz from Victoria, Australia. Josh Zitfilek. I'm not sure if Josh, I'm probably getting that wrong, but you're from Williamsburg, Virginia. You're a local boy. Andy donated. So Josh, love you. Ricardo Zaragoza from Riverside, California. Lynn Ashton Jr., PLLC from Buckeye, Arizona. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, Greg is at Millette from Norwood, Massachusetts. David Lenher from Red Lodge, Montana. And he donated, so David, thank you very much. And Scott Minarsina from Lawrenceville, Georgia. So thank you very much. And again, for everyone else, I will get to you. I just want to spread it out a little bit. So, um... 
yeah, we're almost there. I hope you're enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying the uh, level of detail. I had one guy, I can't remember what app it was on. He gave me one star. He said, too much detail. And I'm like, that's the point. Anyway, anyway, I hope you have a great week. I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. And as always, take care, everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.